Well, let's see how this works. I'm not sure. I picked the music. It's short. And uh, this is, uh, there is a way out. It's January 8th. Actually, 2022. The last one I tried to do was almost two years ago. It was in January. It was on this same platform. But uh, my name is Bromo and there is a way out. I'm an alcoholic of almost 13 years. My sobriety date is 2-1709. I just want to make sure that I let people know that I'm not an expert. I don't have any certificate or anything like that. I do have experience, life experience from going through the ups and downs and the urges to drink. And so I'm just going to pass on uh, what I've gathered. And I guess this first episode will be kind of a real quick recap of where I was and what happened and, and uh, how I am today. But, uh, you know, when I grew up in high school, I was one of those kids in school that, you know, you never knew. You turn around and go, you knew here? Nope. Been sitting behind you all year. Okay, could you pass that uh, this uh, yearbook to Betty Popular? Sure, here you go. Anyway, I didn't go to a lot of parties just because I had my small group of friends and I didn't really see any alcohol or marijuana around. But um, when I did start seeing it, as I got older um, in my 20s, I still didn't want to drink at all. I had no craving to uh, pick up a beer. And matter, matter of fact, I couldn't stand the taste of beer when I was in my early 20s. Um, I was a distance runner where so much so that I was pretty much addicted to having to run every single day. In fact, I kept a journal of how many miles I ran. I kept a journal of what kind of shoes I wore, what the weather was, what my pulse rate was. And if there was one day that I did not run, I felt guilty as you know what. So in a way, I, I'm pretty much, I guess I have an addictive nature because I was addicted to running. I weighed about 125 pounds. We all know chicks dig the emaciated looking uh, guys with who can't even wear a watch on their wrist, but I was pretty good at what I did then. Uh, I ran marathons and competed as best I could. But when I got injured, I guess you would say I needed an outlet for the energy I was putting out every single day. I was running up to 100 mile weeks and things like that. But I do remember working at a restaurant, and I remember. The first time when I was washing dishes and it was about 9,000 degrees back in the in the back and it was hot and it was a Saturday night and it was busy. I do remember a, a cocktail waitress coming in with a green glass full of something in it and she said, this is from the bartender. And of course I gave her that thank you so much and that grin and trying to look cool, which I wasn't. And I remember the first sip was ice cold beer and it never tasted any better. That was probably the best beer I've ever had. I must have gulped that down in about three or four gulps. And uh, then immediately I liked beer. And of course I did the restaurant life where you work late and you're busy. And when you get off work, you, you just want to relax with your coworkers and blow off some steam and go out and eat someplace at 1.30 at night. And drinking became my lifestyle now. And it progressed and I found myself going out more you know, doing the, let me see if I can pick up a gal with another guy on my right. I guess you would say my wingman. 
and all would result would be at 1.45 in the morning, we would be two-fisted walking around trying to look for someone. <laughs> of course, nothing would ever happen. We would down those remaining drinks and go get some uh, rolled tacos somewhere. But I do uh, remember that alcohol became more and more into my life. And as I worked in radio, uh, alcohol progressed from beer to drinking uh, vodka and things like that. And I was working on a radio show where, to my benefit, a lot of my personal life came out. um, And that was good. But as I noticed, as my alcohol drinking became uh, more and more into my life, a lot of the stories that were told were from people who saw me at a bar, passed out, or saw me completely blotto. And, you know, I never really thought about it back then because I was uh, really having a blast and living in Mission Beach. And um, that was my personality, you know. But I'm sure people outside of the uh, the arena when listening in would say, geez, that Bromo guy drinks a lot. So um, I'm just trying to fast forward everything so I won't bore people to death, anybody that's heard my story. I had a girlfriend that I lived with downtown. And um, she had come from another city. And she moved out to San Diego. And she didn't know how much I drank, of course, until she started living with me. And then uh, about a month in, you know, she gave me that, hey, if you don't stop drinking, I'm going to leave you. And, you know, I heard that and I tried, but not really. I guess when when I say I tried, I started looking for places to hide the alcohol or not drink as much around her. Uh, maybe drink a lot before I got home, and I'm sure she knew right away, but... Bottom line is after the third time she told me that and she finally found a bottle behind a bottle of something else in the very back of a shelf, she left. And so that crushed me, of course. And I went on a major spiral downhill, feeling sorry for myself and drinking a lot more, but still going to work. But... uh, for the first time, I noticed that parts of my health were deteriorating, as in I, I couldn't feel my legs at certain points when I woke up at 4 o'clock in the morning. And that was because at this time of my life, to, uh, to drown out the pain and to numb myself even more, I was taking, not only was I drinking a six-pack of beer and three of those little martini club can things, I was also now taking uh, those Tylenol sleeping pills. And those sleeping pills progressed to about six or seven a night. It's a wonder when you look back, when I look back now, remember that Bad Company song when the guy died, Johnny died in his sleep or something like that? You know, it's a wonder, wonder why that didn't happen to me at, say, two o'clock in the morning with a bottle of pills on the ground. Anyway, I went, moved back to my place in Mission Beach, loving the, the single life, which took a long time to get over that pain. But... My drinking was there, and um, I noticed I started getting the shakes at one point, and the shakes would not go away. They would come about 20 minutes after I woke up at 4 or something in the morning, and they would get worse. 
And they wouldn't go away until like my second pure glass of vodka in the afternoon. And then my shakes were gone. And then I would try to eat something terrible like a frozen uh, frozen dinner, microwave it and eat about half of it. And the rest I couldn't finish because I was sick to my stomach because my body was so consumed into taking that alcohol in. That's all I wanted. So the first time that I realized I was having trouble was with the shakes and in the back of my mind, I'm like, do you think I could quit? And the one question was, do you want to quit? And that question was never answered because I didn't want to. And I, I didn't think I could. And I was scared. And, you know, how are, how are you all of a sudden going to just come right out and tell everybody? Yes, I drink way too much. Yes, I have a problem. Where do I go? Do I just close up my life for weeks and go to some place like a hospital or a recovery place. What do I do for work? How am I supposed to drop everything and go? But that was taken care of for me when uh, the people that I work with said, yeah, you need some help. And so I went to a place in La Mesa called ARI or something like that. I forget. It's been so long ago. It's over there in La Mesa Parkway uh, Drive. It was a, I was admitted into a a rehab, not not a rehab to um, to intoxic to get to intoxication in a place to to uh, detox is what I'm trying to say, and so the first time I went in there, signed all the paperwork, and my mom gave me a big hug and cried and everything, and said she was proud of me, and I went in and I believe I stayed there what three or four days, where I was monitored and given uh, medicine and things like that and detoxing, and. Uh, then when I was released, I was told that I was going to be going to an outpatient program. I think three times a week I would go. But here's the rub. And how many, how many times do you ever hear people say that? Here's the rub. <laughs> here's the rub. I mean, this outpatient program was great for people who can actually go home and not drink. And I realized that, hey, here I am at this place. And I can go home and I can drink all of the next day and kind of like try and stop late that night because the following day I'd be going in and sometimes I would be given a test where I, you know, pee into a cup and sometimes I wouldn't, but I wouldn't know that. But, but that's just three times a week. You obviously, as a pure alcoholic or someone that knows what, how they can fake the system, you know you can drink at home. So it really wasn't doing me any good. I was pretending like I wanted to stop and I was telling my counselor that it was that it was time for me to stop. But how could I be 100 convinced when I kept thinking about how I was going to drink later on? So that failed, obviously, and I relapsed again. And um, I forget the events that happened in that relapse. It wasn't good, of course. Uh, I ended up in the hospital and uh, from there... I got out and I was given another chance. Oh, I know what happened. I didn't go to a hospital. I went to that same detox center in La Mesa for another three or four days. Same deal. And my counselor from uh, the outpatient plan, same one, came over to me and said, well, what makes, we, what makes us think that you're ready to come back again? And I said, because this time I really want it. 
And they're like, really? I'm like, absolutely, I really want it. And I was almost convinced that I did until I wasn't. Until I started doing stupid things like, like on the weekend, I would go into my favorite bar. But I would go in there convinced that I was just going to have a virgin Bloody Mary and an omelet. And of course, I'd come back to the uh, outpatient program on Monday and they'd say, hey, how did everyone's weekend go? And I would say, well, this is what I did. And my counselor said, that is the dumbest thing I've heard. And I was mad because she was pointing me out in front of everybody. So what do you, what do you, what do you mean? She goes, there you are going back to a place you drank, 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 drank. And you went to your favorite bar stool and you had a virgin Bloody Mary and breakfast. I said, yeah, 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 but I didn't drink. She goes, but, but you're not ready to go into that kind of place. Not even close. And she was right. I fought it, but at the time, but obviously knowing now that she was way right. That was just, that was just teasing myself. So uh, I've convinced myself that I'm ready, but I, again, wasn't because I lasted a couple more weeks and, re- and did the same pattern where I drank at night up to a certain point where I stopped so I can pass the urinating test if there was one because they randomly gave us one. And so I made it for a little bit and relapsed. And it relapsed hard. Now, this, this is the time I went to the hospital. And I stayed there for a little bit because my blood pressure was going to kill me. I get out of the hospital and it's been recommended to me that I go to McDonald's. McDonald's Center, which was over there in La Jolla, just off the highway. So McDonald's Center was a 28-day program, kind of like a, some people call them a spin dry. So I stayed there for the full 28 days. The rooms were really cool, uh, almost like high-tech apartment rooms. I had a roommate. Roommate was awesome. And I stayed there for a full 28 days. And I remember when I went in, it was right before New Year's Eve. And I remember like the fifth day in, actually maybe the 12th day in, I thought it was really strange that at midnight on New Year's Day, you know, with the horns going off and everything, they, they had us all coming out of our rooms into the kitchen and they assembled plastic, and I'm not kidding you, they assembled plastic champagne glasses and uncorked, um, obviously, not alcohol, uncorked apple cider. And it looked just like a champagne bottle. And I looked around the room and I, I saw so many people going, this is the dumbest thing. How does this not want me to drink? Hey, happy new year. And here we are drinking apple cider. Yippity doo da day or so. It wasn't the same, obviously. And we were all disgruntled and not wanting to be there. And I understand them trying to cheer us up, but I don't think that you give a bunch of uh, alcoholics, drug people, uh, champagne glasses that are plastic and making it look like it's champagne. But anyway, I get out of McDonald's Center, which was 28 days, like I said, and I lasted about a week because I'll tell you why when I was with my counselors from McDonald's Center and they brought my mom in with my stepdad they had said uh, to me that they recommend that when I got out of there I went to a sober living home and of course my mind recommended to me heck no I'm not doing that I want to go home 
I want to go back to Mission Beach. I want to live my life again. I want to get back to work. Uh, and, and, you know, again, fooling myself because I, I still didn't want to lose uh, alcohol, even though my body was killing me. And so they had told my mom that they had recommended this or that. And uh, I convinced my mom that I wanted to go back home and I'll be okay. And I learned so much from this month long thing and I was ready to start a brand new life. And I did. And that lasted a week because when I got out of the hospital and I knew I was gonna go to some meetings, I would go. Physically, I was there mentally. Heck no, was I not there because about 20 minutes in after the meeting started, I would duck into a restroom and split. And see, I wasn't required. I didn't have to sign anything to be there. And that was another thing. My mind said, no, you don't want to be here, dude. This is so boring. Get out of here. So I remember the day that I relapsed because I was listening to people walking around. Uh, it was almost around Valentine's Day. Actually, it was Valentine's Day uh, back in 2009. It was Valentine's Day and people were living it up. And I felt sorry for myself. So I grabbed my keys and I looked at my stupid energy drink and I go, this is, this is not doing it anymore. <laughs> I want this thing. And I walked through the alleyway like a thief in the night. I walked through the alleyway to a liquor store that nobody would recognize me in. And I bought one tall beer. And I said, well, how is this gonna hurt anything? And I took that beer back and I sat on my bed and the first two sips out of that big tall boy, I started crying because I knew from relapsing before that this is just only a matter of time before that one beer was gonna be two and three and then vodka was gonna come into play. And sure enough, for about two days, that's what I did. It got worse and I drank more. <clears throat> and my sister was in town and my mom, they were expecting me to grab a chip for being sober at that place in, Las, in La Mesa. And I called them and said I had the flu and I lied. Of course you're gonna lie. Cause I didn't want anyone to see me. And I remember my sister who was in town from Boston area was scared. She called my stepbrother who went over to my place in Mission Beach and tried to get in. And I lived up on the third floor so they flagged down a police officer and they climbed over the fence, went in through the screen door. And there I was sitting on the edge of my bed with my door closed with empty medicine, blood pressure pill bottles on my cardboard desk. <laughs> yeah. And he knocked on the door and he said, Dave, Bromo. And I couldn't believe it. In a way I was relieved. In another way I was just mortified. And they came in and they looked at the empty bottles at first and thought that maybe I was taking too many pills to try to kill myself, which was not the case. It was the case that I just didn't renew my prescription. So pretty soon my blood pressure was gonna kill me and now I've already relapsed. So they took me away to the same hospital that I was at, the same paramedics, and went out of there. And uh, when I got through 
a couple of days in the hospital, I was so weak I could barely walk and they had things strapped on me. So if I tried to get out, it would set off alarms and stuff. I remember that they tried to go back to Scripps McDonald's Center to get me back in and they said, well, this guy was just here. He just left. His bed is barely, barely uh, cold. We don't take retreads back that soon. And there was a counselor there by the name of Dave. And I remember uh, looking down going, well, what do I do? And he said, I have an idea. It's a pretty rough place, but it'll save your life. And uh, I was with somebody and he told my friend that the place was called the Freedom Ranch out in Campo. The Freedom Ranch. Campo? Where's Campo? Halfway to the moon? We, my stepbrother picked me up on a Sunday. We drove like 35 miles east of Alpine. In the middle of nowhere, we pull into a dirty, dusty lot with big, huge guys with tattoos playing horseshoes. And they're all looking at me. And I remember looking at my stepbrother and I said, I don't belong here. And he goes, yeah, I think you do. We parked and we went in and sat in and and listened to a Sunday afternoon meeting at Freedom Ranch. And I believe they were at four o'clock, I think, on Sundays. And Freedom Ranch is all guys, and there are about 40 of them. At least that's how it was back then. And uh, they had a big, huge hall room. And I sat there and listened. And afterwards, the cook actually came over and said hi. And he said, I hope hope you guys are going to stay. And my stepbrother goes, yeah, we'll stick around. And I remember seeing the cook. He was a resident, but he was also a cook. We stayed, and uh, they told me to come back the following day and fill out an application. And we were driving out of there, and I'm saying to myself, ain't no way, way am I going to stay here scared to death. I don't belong here is what I kept telling myself. I filled out the application the next day and I met a man named George, a big strapping guy with a cowboy hat and an accent. And he came over and sat down. And he goes, look, I know who you are. He goes, you're Bromo. I listen to you guys and listen, I want to get you in here and I want to give you some confidence. I want to show you what you could do with your life. And You know, I listened to him and I thought he was a really nice guy and I nodded with him. He made me feel a little bit better. So I went on a waiting list and it took about three weeks. And I remember calling in every other day, hoping I'd call in. Yeah, this is Bromo just checking in. Yeah, hold on. And I remember thinking, no, 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 no. Sorry, Bromo. You're getting close. Call uh, two days away from now. Oh, thank you. Oh, man, darn it. I really want to come in. Hang up the phone. I was relieved because I didn't want to start that life. It was a life that I didn't even have no clue about. It was dropping everything in my world and going to a place and staying with a bunch of, uh, a bunch of uh, intimidating guys way out in the sticks. When I finally did get that call, I got myself ready and I got my few things I was allowed to bring and I was just mortified. Driving over the hill, driving into Campo and my job was now, to me, pretty apparent that that was toast, being on the radio. And uh, here I was going to go live now for at least 120 days. And I thought to myself, 
you know, what, how worse can this get? And we could talk about that a little later on. But I, I, I was just in a bad place. I had no enthusiasm for anything. I pulled into the lot, get my stuff out. And a guy comes over and introduces himself. Takes me over to where my bunk is. I was in room three, I think. And there was three bunk beds in it. So I had new roommates. And I sat there, and it was the Freedom Ranch. And the first night, I sat in the front row. And I was given a token, I think. And I was entered, I was listening to everybody. And I remember it was in, in the start of the summer, where it can be 195 degrees out there in Campo. I remember one day when they had a class, they had a classroom set up. A teacher would come in, Doug was his name. And uh, we would go over the steps. And that was Monday through Friday. And I remember the first day he comes in, the first time I saw him, and uh, I introduced myself because he had the newcomers introduce himself. And he asked me questions like, so uh, do you think you're ready to stop? And I, and I think I tried to fake him out, but he could read right through me. But I remember exactly what he said. He said, take a look around you. Turn around and look at all the people in the back. Look off to your side, to your right and left. Of these 40 people, a year away from now, the odds are that two of you, maybe three, will still be sober. I remember thinking, BS on that. Come on. Can we get a little bit more dramatic here? He goes, some of you will be dead. Some of you will be missing. And uh, a lot of you will be right back at it to the hellhole you were in. And I was thinking, man, I'm alive. This is, this, yeah, right. And as the weeks went by, and I'm looking out the window, looking at life go by, and I hated every single second of it. I'm in a, in a place where they're all guys, where we have meetings every night, which I couldn't stand. The food is decent, and we had chores to do. And I didn't feel safe. I just felt lost. I felt completely lost and at a place that I didn't even want to be at. And I felt like society said, see you later there, Bromo. And I remember one day on a normal Tuesday or Wednesday, Doug says, hey, we got some uh, visitors and they're from Pathfinders. And Pathfinders is a recovery home in San Diego, right in the middle of San Diego, pretty much. So we're going to let these guys talk to you and we, I want you to listen to them. And they took over. And I remember there's three of them. And their main point was that, you know, when you do your 120 days or whatever at Freedom Ranch, there's a time where you're going to leave. And their main point was you got to have a plan. You got to have a plan when you get out. You got to have a smart plan. You just can't go back to where you were before. And that's exactly my first thinking was I want to just go back to where I was before. And they talked about Pathfinders, about how it's a place you can sp you spend nine months at, a recovery home for men. They have three different houses. The first house, you stay for three months. You progress to the second house, which is just around the corner. You stay there for another three months. And then you go to the third house, which is right next door to the first house. And there you spend your last three months easing yourself out of the recovery home into life. And I listened to him and I'm like, well, you know what? That's not a bad idea because I have no place to go. What am I going to do when I get out of here? And so I 
put myself on a list for Pathfinders. Did the same kind of thing where I think I called maybe every once a week or something like that because Pathfinders had a lot of people there. So I made that weekly call and I was finally told after 125 days, I think, at Freedom Ranch that they had a bed ready for me and that I would be able to come out there on a certain date. Now, I had my car out there, which was parked in the back up on top of a hill. <clears throat> I remember on that day that I was leaving, I couldn't wait to get out of there. Sure, I said goodbye to certain people, and I said to George, thank you, George. Got into my car, and I listened to that song from Queensryche, uh, Silent Lucidity. I remember listening to that, driving out of Campo, getting on the highway, freeway, whatever, on my way to Pathfinders, listening to that song, thinking, okay, where's my life going? Still, still, by the way, thinking, am I done with drinking? You know, that didn't really come into my play, in my head. The only thing that I was thinking about was what, what was I going to be doing with my life? But now I know I'm going to Pathfinders. And I got there and I checked in. It was a beautiful place. A lot different scenery <laughs> comes into play from Pathfinders to Freedom Ranch. Pathfinders was in Golden Hills. Pathfinders, had, the first house had a porch you could sit on and drink coffee and smoke a cigar. And within, I don't know, two or 300 yards, you could see a bar right down the street. And uh, I got myself situated in and had a chance to just kind of absorb it and meet other people that were going through the same thing that I was. The ages of everybody was different between, I think the youngest person might have been like 17 to like the oldest person might have been in his late 50s or 60s. And so I went through that nine-month period. And in that nine-month period, you know, I had listened to uh, meetings that we had in the house and I knew that I had to get a sponsor because that's what you're supposed to do. So I got a sponsor and um, the one that I had, our personalities just didn't really mix. And I paid attention to them as much as possible. I got another sponsor who took me through the steps. And he was a great guy. And he's still sober. And he's awesome. Um, but even through the steps, I still wasn't sold. I still wasn't. I, I still thought that for some crazy reason, there was someone walking around with a camera taking uh, pictures and video of me like I was some sort of superstar that maybe down the road there'd be some sort of reality show made because I, I, I thought I was still that bromo the big shot on the radio but I wasn't um, but I remember you know my sponsor at one point telling me when you get out of here you gotta get a job and I'm like yeah I really want to get back into radio and he's like well if radio doesn't come around, you got to get anything. And I'm like, like what? He's like, go work at McDonald's. I'm like, I work at McDonald's. No offense to anyone who works at McDonald's. Because I felt like I was, I hadn't, I felt like I was owed something way better than that. And he's like, dude, you just have to be, you have to submit to anything and just be grateful for whatever you can get when you get out of here. And if you have to get two or three jobs, so be it. And I'm like, screw that. I was Mr. Big Shot, remember? And uh, like I said, I thought I was owed everything. 
I thought one day the miracle that you hear that they say the miracle will happen. I thought to me that would be a blonde that would pull in in a, in a sports car coming out with a suitcase of money and cigars and say, hey, by the way, we got a job for you working on a radio station when you get out of here. That was my wait for the miracle. <laughs> so would listen to the meetings, but I really wouldn't. I would be there because my body was supposed to be there, but I couldn't stand listening to the same people talk all the time. There were certain podium people, and and uh, I didn't pay attention to the words. I didn't, I didn't listen to the stories that the men and women were saying. See, women were allowed to come in for some of our meetings, and that's part of the strength of our program that we could talk about way later uh, as we go along with these episodes. But I didn't pay attention. Now, there are things in life that you remember every single detail. Still, and, and I remember this. I don't remember the exact date, but I remember I was about six months in. I think I had another three months left. And one of my buddies there, I'll just call him Tim. Tim and I used to, Tim got there right around the same time I got there at Pathfinders. So we were there for six months. And sometimes Tim and I, because they would let us go, and if someone had a car, they would let us go as long as we checked in and out. Tim and I and about four or five other guys, we would go over to someone's house and make dinner. And somebody would get to pick what they wanted. And we'd have a sober dinner, and we'd come back later on that night on a Sunday and start our week the next week. And it was great. Just kind of a way to get out and not have the food there, even though the food at Pathfinders was terrific. So Tim and I would hang out on the porch and smoke, and, and uh, he would talk about what he wanted to do when he got out of there, and he had some goals and aspirations, and uh, he felt defeated, but he felt like uh, he felt like once he once his head was clear, that he'd be given a brand new start, which is what all of us wanted, really. But I, of course, was being lazy and didn't think ahead of my future because once again I was just wallowing around there. So I remember once on a weekend coming up, Tim uh, left and did not come back. And uh, we were all, all of us guys, the next morning were worried. See, Monday through Friday, we had a huddle kind of thing, like a 25-minute huddle where we all sat in chairs in a circle and we read some motivational books and we would go around the room and kind of talk how we're feeling, you know? Some guys would be real chatty. Some guys would only say a couple things. And most of us didn't want to be there, but it was, that was our time to kind of express ourselves in the morning. And I remember we were wondering where Tim was. And uh, we had found out that uh, Tim had gone out with his brother who had convinced Tim to go to a bar to watch a football game. Remember back when I said earlier that I had gone to that bar to have a Virgin Bloody Mary in an omelet. Well, Tim kind of did the same thing. He went to his favorite bar with his brother, and his brother convinced him to have one beer, which led to about three or four more. And I believe he had a he had a DUI or something like that, or something that happened that he did not come back to the house. They found out that he drank, and Tim was kicked out. I never saw Tim again. And I was hoping we would hear from him. But about three days later, in the morning, 
I, we were all sitting around just still looking down at the ground, tired, wondering what we're going to do that day and not really loving the routine of being there. And I remember our manager came in and said, hey, listen up, everybody. I got something to say. You know, we're still looking away. And he said, um, yesterday they found Tim. He had hung himself in a hotel room. And I remember when I, when I heard those words and I looked up at my manager across the way and the only thing I can think of was, well, this is not a reality show at all. This isn't, uh, you're not some sort of little uh, fantasy deal there, Bromo. This is real life. For some reason, Tim drank and for another reason, Tim chose to end his life by hanging himself in a crappy, lousy hotel room. He also left behind his family and a, and a son. And all I can think of was what were the final thoughts going on in Tim's head when he chose to take his life. The only thing I could think of clearly was that alcohol had chased him to his death. And is that... Is that the direction that I wanted to go? No. And right then and there, things became crystal clear that I had to do something, that I had to pay attention, that I had to get back with a sponsor that I had kind of left before and get to work. And I remember everything from that point I slowly started listening to people as they got up to the podium. Instead of shaking off what they were saying and looking outside and wondering what I was going to do and how I could get the heck out of there and go smoke a cigar, I listened to people. And I listened to their stories of grief. And I realized to myself that this is a disease that I have that's not going away in time. So here's the thing. I will uh, continue this next episode. And I, I wanted to say I appreciate so many people telling me um, things we can talk about in the future. And there's so many. Gratitude and family and, um, you know, wh what's the best way to approach a plan for yourself um, like I said, I'm not an expert at this. I just, to me, reflect on the highs, but especially the lows. And, you know, I'll just say this real quick. I've opened my big mouth sometimes when I, when I go and I, uh, I don't tell a whole lot of people at work or anything like that or people that don't know anything about the disease, but... You know, I have said to people at meetings before that, man, I had the worst dream last night. It was so real. I remember in my dream thinking to myself, well, I just broke my almost 13 year sobriety with that first drink. I remember feeling the doom. I remember feeling the, the, the horror. And it felt as real as possible. And when I woke up, Talk, you talk about a big, huge 
relief. You talk about getting in the shower and analyzing what you dreamt. And then people told me as I, as I revealed that, they're like, oh, that's a bad sign. And I say, no, it isn't. That's not a bad sign at all, in my opinion. In my opinion, my mind is still saying, listen, hello, you know, drinking is still there. It's just around the corner. You're that close to feeling so good about yourself and dropping your guard and saying, well, I could have one beer or even a non-alcoholic beer. And with a dream that comes around and kicks my rear end, I'm grateful for. It's not like I go to bed and hope that I dream of those. And they don't come around every night, once in a while. So I just wanted to finish with that. And for anybody that may be listening to this, whether you're 50 years sober or like 10 minutes sober, we all go through it. And it's all a day-by-day thing. The easiest advice of all, of course, is take it one day at a time. And that's as simple, and you'll hear that a trillion times, but it's so true. And if anyone also wants to let me know um, what they want to talk about or what they want to hear, please, you can always respond through this. You can send me a message. Because if there are some people out there that are walking the fence and wondering if maybe they drink too much or maybe they can relate to anything that I said, well, clearly, uh, there is a way out. 